My name is Neil Canavan. I'm the scientific advisor to Solberry Trout, and this is the latest edition of NameTag, a podcast series that introduces healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the healthcare sector forward. Today, I'm speaking with Vishal Doshi. He is the CEO of AUM Biosciences. Vishal, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's a pleasure to, pleasure to be speaking with you today. Now, first things first, sir, uh, for the benefit of may, for those who may not be familiar with AUM, let's start with the elevator pitch. So Vishal, 60 seconds or less, how long have you guys been in business? Where are you headquartered? And give me a taste of what you do there. Great, no, thank you. So Ohm Biosciences is an oncology focused clinical stage healthcare company with a portfolio of first in class small molecules OM aims to develop novel cancer therapies to address significant unmet medical needs in a faster and more efficient manner. In addition to the existing pipeline, OM will seek to acquire and develop additional promising small molecule candidates through a targeted deal-making program. We currently have two novel oncology drugs in our pipeline for which we hold global rights in all indications. OM001, targets colorectal cancer as well as leukemia with a combined market size of over $13 billion. And OM302 targets, targets breast cancer uh, and orphan drug, a potential orphan drug indication called neuroblastoma and has a potential market, uh, a total mark, addressable market of over $18 billion. Where are you? Uh, we are headquartered in Singapore. Okay. with offices and presence in the U.S. as well as Australia. All right, we're going to find out a, a good bit more about the technology in a few minutes. Uh, but first, actually, sort of a, a very basic question. What, is, what does AUM stand for? So AUM, for those who are in finance, it's assets under management. For those who have a spiritual side, it's Ohm Biosciences and Ohm is a frequency which is present everywhere in the world, but people can only listen and uh, view that frequency if you focus on your eye center. And that's from more spiritual side, but people from the finance, it's very easy for them to remember the company's <laughs> name, it's Assets Under Management. Okay, um, we'll get back to the company in just a minute, but in keeping with the mission here at NameTag, uh, we're going to introduce the listeners to the senior management, and that would be you. So first, I'm going to start with your education. You have a bachelor's in pharmaceutical sciences with a focus on pharmaceutical formulation and synthetic chemistry from the University of Mumbai. This is uh, circa uh, 2006. And then from there, you leave the country of your birth to go to London for Kingston University. Uh, why London? Why did you make this move? So when I finished my pharmacy, um, I had decided that I wanted to learn the nitty gritty uh, and the details around how a drug comes about from a laboratory all the way until uh, to, to, to the commercial world as well. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to understand that, I needed to know the the, the basics of how the drug is actually uh, synthesized in a, in a lab. So that took me to, that took me to London uh, to understand how the drug is synthesized and, and how new research is conducted 
Um, and as part of my journey, that was probably the first step I had to take. So that's what it took me. That's what took me to London. And I did my master's in pharmaceutical sciences from Kingston University in the UK, where I also trained myself as a medicinal chemist. So from there, you left the bench, but it sounds to me as if your studies were sort of skewed towards the bigger picture, right? I mean, you were, I don't, it doesn't sound like you were interested in making the next green pill as so much as understanding the process of making the pill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That you, you, you understood that very well. Uh, for me, it was all along the lines. It was really about how to understand the pieces of the puzzle where I'm, I'm equipped to solve the puzzle in a more efficient manner. And it actually started from a point where as part of my thesis, I worked on uh, synthesizing aromatase inhibitors. And I was able to synthesize 14 compounds in the lab, uh, of which seven compounds were uh, not eligible to move ahead because of the poor yield. Um, and for those uh, who are from the chemistry background would understand what I'm saying. Uh, but the remainder of the seven compounds were, let me put it that way, not that bad. And they, we could have easily patented them. Um, but that's, that's where the journey really began. And at that time, every university, as you know, has some financial constraints. And um, I, I learned at that point of time that a lot of research happens in the university, but not all the research goes out in the open. Mm -hmm. So that was actually a good step uh, for me uh, when it comes from taking research and commercializing it. And it's not always about whether the science is really good, but it's also about knowing people and uh, working with people who know how to commercialize it. So that, that was actually a nice step towards the journey all the way until what it is today. So taking scientific research from university and not just letting it be on the shelf, but actually commercializing uh, all the way until uh, phase threes and phase four. So, yeah. So, so right after that, you decided to go into business in earnest, and this would be in 2008 through 2010 at a place called Pharmanet. Um, we don't have to go too much into your duties there other than you were a business manager in, in charge of growth for the Asian Pacific market. I do want to ask you a question relative to that. Was focusing on the Asia Pacific market your choice or was that assigned within the company? So um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was my choice um, in a way, um, but the whole idea of joining a company like that after my master's was, there's one thing who knows good science, but there's also one thing to know how to sell the science and how to create a journey for that science that comes out of the lab as well. So as, as I'd like to go back when I was in India, my father used to say, if you can do a smallest job in the best way, uh, you can do a biggest job in in a better way. Uh, <laughs> so I actually I actually started to the bottom uh, of of the chain uh, and learned how to write proposals. 
uh, as the first part of my uh, business journey. And it allowed me to um, go into the details of how a good science and a good strategy can play a very significant role in commercializing a drug as well. So that was the lesson I picked up during my time in PharmaNet. Excellent. And you must have learned the lesson well, because shortly thereafter in 2010, you moved to a company that a few people have heard of called Quintiles. And you were there for five very productive years. I was wondering if you'd give me just a, a highlight uh, um, on that experience. Yeah, that was actually a quite an interesting juncture of the life of my life because uh, that was the time when I moved to Singapore. Uh, I joined Quintiles, and those were very, very productive years of my life in Quintiles. That's where I built relationships uh, with some very um, interesting people, but more importantly, one of my co-founders of Own Biosciences. His name is Dr. Harish Dave. Uh, who's based in uh, Maryland uh, in the U.S. as well. So um, it, was, it was a very exciting journey. And uh, what it, it, Quintas gave us a very good platform of building good, good deals and understanding the, the science behind deal making uh, and understanding how a drug is taken right from early phase clinical trial all the way until commercialization with big pharma companies and companies. So as I'd like to put it, we were working with multiple pharma companies on a daily basis. So we were learning from different mistakes of different companies, but we were also learning from different successes of different companies as well. So that was, that was an interesting journey. But during a time in Quintiles, um, uh, Neil, we were involved in a very unique strategic partnership with a Japanese company called Azai Pharmaceuticals. Sure. And at the time of, uh, of, of our journey in Quintiles, um, me and my co-founder um, were involved in this strategic partnership. And my co-founder actually was very heavily involved in having a project finance model deal with, so it was, a, it was a private equity deal with uh, Azai Pharmaceuticals. And the, the size of the private equity deal was approximately $145 million. Uh, and it was funded by NovaQuest. And that was a journey and that was the germ of how OM was going to be set up. This virtual drug development model that we had set with Azai and we had executed with Azai uh, kind of set the germ for own biosciences in the next few years. And it was a very successful partnership. There were three um, assets related to that, yes? Yes. So, so the entire deal with Azai had six oncology drugs, of which three became uh, three completed clinical proof of concept. And all the three drugs that completed clinical proof of concept ended up becoming commercialized drugs. One is Erebilin uh, oh. with, uh, with a few hundred million dollars a year of annual sales. Um, ONTAC was another one uh, mm -hmm. with, with a couple of hundred million dollars uh, a year in annual sales. Um, I think it's hundred million dollars a year to be precise. Um, and then there was Lenvatinib, uh, which as you might rightly know, MSD had acquired 
commercialization rights for $300 million upfront and uh, close to $6 billion in enterprise value in 2018. And this was actually a partnership and a strategic partnership that was devised at the time when we were in Quintas. Uh, and this was a very nice journey that I, along with my co-founder, uh, who led this uh, pro program called Project Max, uh, and, and that's, that's where we picked up how to efficiently deliver on a virtual clinical development model uh, as well. Now, before I get into the brass tacks of AUM, uh, I have a far more general question, which has to do with the way business is conducted in the EU or the US as opposed to it, how it's uh, conducted in this Pacific Rim. Now, I know we spoke earlier, uh, you do speak four or five languages. None of them are of particular help in the Pacific Rim uh, because, well, English, English is widely spoken. Do the cultural difference in business, does that, does it may really make a difference? Do you, do you, when you're in Singapore, is it, are things done just a bit differently? Uh, I, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, cultural difference is knowing the difference, uh, knowing the uh, difference of how you speak with uh, an individual from the United States of America and how you speak with an individual from, uh, uh, from China. Uh, it really helps. And Singapore has been a great platform, if I may put it that way, because this country is so diverse. Uh, you are able to talk to different nationalities, different race, different uh, uh, people from different uh, backgrounds, all at the same time in one single country as well. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely. It definitely helps knowing different cultures because uh, every country does business in a very different way. Um, so I, I genuinely think it's a positive to know different languages, um, but sometimes when people are speaking in their own language, it, always, it, it, it acts as a good icebreaker. Let me put it that way. It acts as a good mm, icebreaker sure. knowing how you communicate with people in their local languages as well. So yes, no, I think that's, that's the beauty about Asia. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute uh, dynamic environment and it promises to be so uh, for the next few years as well. So you were at Quintiles, uh, involved with some very uh, successful franchises there. And you, you were, this was your first journey in Singapore. You obviously spent some time there at your new home. And then you described to me, uh, you left Quintiles and you took some time to think and took six months and sat on the beach. And what was the result of that six months? Well, the result of that six months was owned by a scientist. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and just connecting the dots. Uh, if you think about it, Neil, what I just mentioned to you when I did my pharmacy, moved to the UK, learned how science is not getting commercialized uh, or, or there is more to be done on that. And that's where I picked up on this, uh, the, the major unmet medical need. If you look at it in the drug development or a big pharma or a centralized R&D model, mm -hmm. it, it's inherently uh, something which needs a little bit of a, a turn. Uh, 
And if I may give you a couple of numbers, uh, the, the centralized R&D IRR is expected to be 0% uh, in 2020. Uh, and uh, the centralized R&D model has three major challenges. One is high cost, low productivity, and all-time low returns. And just in recent years, the average development cost per drug has increased by 67%, while peak sales have declined by 50%. Hmm. And while sitting on the beach, what I thought of is creating a solution to tackle this problem and according to the way you see the name of the company, it's AUM, it's Assets Under Management, we feel that the solution to tackling this problem is to decentralize and de-risk oncology drug development. I say oncology drug development because we would like to start off with oncology drug development uh, and, and, and journey into the future uh, as we move along. But while this to, to to allow us to disrupt this space, we could not do that just by taking an individual approach of having a drug and then developing it in a very same plain vanilla manner. So to answer your question, what did I do uh, in, uh, for six months sitting on the beach? Uh, I actually had my laptop in front of me uh, and I was writing up a business plan um, and, and it was a nice, nice setting to write up a business plan in, but the whole idea was to really address this uh, centralized R&D uh, model and how can we potentially decentralize the R&D. And this has actually been proven quite successful with, com with a couple of companies in, in the US that has proved to be very successful in the last four to five years. And that remains to be unnamed, but you might know which companies I'm talking about. Well, let me uh, the touch on the three components that are the, the driving uh, engine, if you will, behind Biohelm AUM. The first being small molecule, which any developer can tell you are, is a lot better than biologics as far as physically making them. Uh, two is biomarker-driven leads, and that is definitely the way the industry is going. Uh, payers are increasingly unwilling to allow you to, to reimburse a drug if you don't have the biomarker for the drug. And the third being trial design, and this again has evolved fairly recently into various innovative designs which enable you to uh, fail fast, as they say. Uh, and those would be basket trials, umbrella trials, and what has always fascinated, fascinated me is the adaptive uh, trial design. Now, taken all together, you refer to this as a holistic approach. Could you just elucidate a bit more on that and, and the driving force behind uh, AUM? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great question. And, uh, and that's exactly how OM looks at it, is a more holistic approach and a multifaceted approach towards uh, drug development. Uh, that, that we employ within, within the company. Um, the, one of the reasons why we decided to go more into small molecules at the time of the inception of the company was uh, to enable us to move towards a more genetic targets uh, in oncology drug development uh, and, and really understand a very 
mutation. Uh, it's, it's a very, very detailed mutation specific approach, which is where I feel the industry is moving. Um, mm. And that allows us to have biomarkers as a mandatory requirement. And within OM, uh, we call it as no biomarker, no drug approach. Um, mm. So we, we put a strong emphasis on having a biomarker uh, when it comes to developing our small molecules. But at the same time, um, if you don't have enough data, uh, you can't make data-driven decisions. Uh, and I think artificial intelligence plays a significant role uh, for us to make smart clinical decision-making. And to your point about fail early, if at all, if it's going to fail. Uh, by the way, I call AI as augmentative intelligence, not artificial intelligence, because that uh, hmm. AI for clinical decision-making, uh, when the drug is already in phase one and phase two, it augments how you would like to phase this drug into uh, making strong endpoints of your protocol uh, versus giving you artificial intelligence data. Uh, AI definitely plays a role in drug discovery, but for me, AI means augmentative intelligence when it comes to clinical development um, rather than artificial intelligence. Well, let's talk about the, uh, the output now, which would be your pipeline. Uh, mm -hmm. The first one I want to cover is AUM001. Mm -hmm. uh, so first, um, is this in-house or was this licensed? So uh, all our molecules uh, at this stage are uh, in license. Okay. Um, so we, we go through a very aggressive deal-making program with research institutions, biotech companies, and pharma companies, and handpick some of the deprioritized assets that sit in pharma companies or biotech companies or good scientific assets that does not have a pathway to commercial world from research institutions. So to answer your question, yes, until now, all our assets have been uh, in license from various uh, sources. Okay, and could you give me a high altitude description of the mechanism of action? Sure. So uh, OM001 uh, is one of the drugs of the entire composition of matter pattern uh, that we have. And as I mentioned to you earlier, we have global rights and all indications for that. And it's a small molecule that selectively inhibits MNK1 and 2. And MNK downregulates the eukaryotic translation initiation factor 4E, EIF4E by down-regulating EIF4E phosphorylation at S209. MNK1 and 2 are terminal kinases in key oncogenic signaling pathways, including PI3K, AKT, mTOR, and RAS and DRAF signaling pathways. Okay. And these are activated by the mitogen-dependent protein kinases in multiple immune cell types. I know I'm, I'm familiar with uh, all the downstream targets you did mention, but I'm not familiar with the upstream target. Um, are, do you have any competitors for this target? So we do have, uh, we do have uh, one in the play right now, uh, and that's actually a company in the West Coast uh, that is developing a similar target, uh, which has, uh, this company has just completed a phase two. Um, uh, recently. 
so yes, we do have one company uh, in, in the West Coast that is developing a similar target. It's a very unique target, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not many are developing it, but at the same time shows some extensive promise of how we can take this drug and and make this as a potential treatment option in multiple cancer types. Uh, but before I go there, uh, I just wanted to add one point if I may, Neil. Um, mm-hmm. the, the thing with MNK, uh, MNK1 and 2, they actually integrate with the MAPK pathway signaling at the level of mRNA translation. And as a result of which, in decreased anti-tumor immune activity due to selective upregulation of several immune checkpoint receptors and specific immunoresponsive cytokines. And the way we like to explain this drug is this is actually a choke point inhibitor, not a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, it's, it's, right at the, it, it's right at the junction uh, where, where, where it gets converted into that mRNA translation and it chokes all the other pathways coming into this, uh, this, this enzyme uh, and, and this kinase that we are trying to inhibit as well. So you would like to call this as a more of a choke point inhibitor, uh, if, if I may put it that way. And uh, where is 001 in development? So uh, OM001 has uh, completed a phase one single ascending dose study, uh, as well as a multiple ascending dose study in healthy volunteers. Um, and this is quite a unique position to be in uh, because the multiple ascending dose studies and the single ascending dose studies confirm the safety of this drug um, and it's ready for phase two now. Uh, so we are looking for investors and partners to work with own biosciences to take this drug forward, not only in, uh, not, not only in combination with IO, but potentially in combination with standard of care as well. Uh, so that's where we are right now. And the second uh, item in your pipeline is OM302. Again, as I understand it, this was in license. Uh, give me uh, just a, a high altitude shot on the mechanism here in the target. So OM302 is, uh, is it's, a, it's a designer drug, let me put it that way. It was designed in CNIO in Spain. And it's a first-in-class small molecule targeted cancer therapeutic that targets both the PIM and the PI3K uh, pathways, uh, as well as the mTOR pathway. So it targets all the three pathways in one single drug. And the novelty of OM302 is that it is cytotoxic rather than being cytostatic. Um, like the current PI3K approaches, uh, which are available out in the market. Uh, It has a much wider therapeutic window than other PI3K inhibitor treatments being developed to target PI3K mutated breast cancer and potentially provides a brand new treatment option to address significant unmet medical need, not only in solid tumors, but potentially in orphan drug indication. And we actually have very strong data to suggest that this would really be a great treatment option for uh, neuroblastoma uh, with, um, with additional data uh, that needs to be collected over the coming uh, years as well. 
when do you expect an IND in that? So we are expecting the IND to be submitted by uh, the July of next year, okay. July of 2021. Now you are in Singapore. Uh, part of the mission statement of OM is to develop the Asian Pacific markets. Uh, are you looking to file in the EU and the US? So that's a fantastic question. That's actually a that's a, that's a very ma that's a mandatory requirement for all biosciences. Um, the way I would like to explain it to you is to develop in Asia does not isolate you from filing your drugs in the West. In fact, it expedites it. So we are here to leverage onto Asia's platform of. Uh, solid patient population, good sites, good clinical research environment, and at the same time, quality sites as well, which is accepted globally. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely. Ohm is a global company. Uh, we are based in Singapore, uh, we, but we have offices and presence in Australia, as well as the US, and we intend to be a global company uh, as, as, we, as any other biotech company would like to be. So we call this uh, concept within OM as Asia to global, where our mandate of doing more early phase clinical development in Asia really catapults the speed and the efficiency of getting drugs ready for phase three in a much more efficient manner and an expedited manner. So mm -hmm. to, to put it simply, for every drug that we have in our pipeline, it has to have a US IND. That's the mandate that we have with the non-biosciences. So absolutely, we'll be filing for, uh, for, for US and European markets as well. Okay, just a couple more questions. Um, you've mentioned partnering uh, once or twice in this conversation. It's quite clearly mentioned on your websites and various communications. Um, I'm gonna mention a bit of news flow. This is from January of this year regarding partnerships of various sorts. If you could tell me briefly about Project Nexus. Yeah, no, that, that, was, that was an interesting partnership that we announced with a Canadian company and a very strong partners of ours called Cyclica uh, INC. And that plays a very important role in how we ensure that we have AI driven data-driven clinical decision-making uh, coming up uh, for our programs for OM001 and OM302 to start off with, but uh, going ahead for all the drugs that we have in our pipeline in the, uh, in the next uh, 18 months or so. Uh, so we call it as Project Nexus, um, and uh, it's, it's just in line with the mandate and the strategy that OM Biosciences have of using AI technologies. Okay, got it. Uh, and this question, very direct. Uh, given your current cash situation, what kind of runway are we looking at right now? So we are currently in midst of our Series A. Um, and as part of our Series A, we have actually received very strong interest from investors in Asia as well as in, uh, in the West as well. Uh, and the current runway that we have is good enough for us to take us all the way until the closure of the CDZ, uh, which we expect to happen 
in the first half of uh, next year or Q1 of next year. Um, so we have, we have uh, quite a good runway um, uh, until, until a point where we'll be able to close our Series A. So is it fair to say um, in the uh, private showcase on the 10th, you hope to have conversations focused on the, the Series A closing that? Absolutely. That's absolutely going to be a primary focus where we are almost currently looking for a lead investor. Uh, and that lead investor will be uh, anchoring the co-investors that have already committed. Uh, soft commitments have already been uh, put together in place. And we are looking at uh, trying to close this round as quickly as we can. Okay, Michelle, I just have one more question. And it's on pretty much everyone's mind, pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh, good managers these days are crisis managers. Uh, how has COVID impacted your operations and how are you responding? Uh, well, um, for me, uh, it, it has definitely, and for a lot of other biotech companies around the world, uh, but I think it definitely has impacted the clinical development. It has definitely mm -hmm. impacted how you expand your programs to, to different geographies uh, and how it has uh, hampered uh, taking your drugs to a different geography versus where you are right now. Uh, but at the same time, we've been quite lucky uh, at Home Biosciences because just when the COVID crisis hit, we were in midst of doing our phase one, multiple ascending dose study in Australia. Uh, and okay. at that time, Australia wasn't hit that bad. So we were able to finish our phase one, multiple ascending dose study in, in a relatively smooth manner as compared to uh, what, what would be the case if we were doing it somewhere else. Um, but uh, I, I definitely uh, feel the pinch, uh, let me put it that way. Sure. Um, and the first half of the year, as a lot of other uh, peers in the industry would have done so, the first half of the year was really to be in a more preserving situation rather than aggressive situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it definitely was a, a great first half of 2020 in multiple ways. Um, but as, a, as I would like to put it, every challenge brings an opportunity and uh, definitely the prospects of technology in drug development becomes even higher now, now that the COVID, has, uh, COVID crisis has hit uh, in 2020. Um, so definitely something I'm, I have a very close eye on uh, over the next six months to 12 months. All right, then. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, listeners, today I have been speaking with Vishal Doshi. He is the CEO of OWN. And thank you again for joining me. And I hope to uh, hear from you or see you on the 10th. Great, Neil. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. All right. Take care.